good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Um, uh, I'm Simon Glendinning. I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy, and uh, delighted to welcome you to this our first session uh, of the new academic year. Uh, thanks for coming out. And um, tonight's event is uh, in the series called Provocations or European Provocations, and this this series began its life at the Institut Francais where uh, we had a little hole in the cellar that they let us have but it became um, too implausibly smelly and disgusting so we've moved <laughs> and now have provocations at the LSE which we're really pleased to do and in the provocation series um, since its inception the idea has been to invite thinkers thought-provoking thinkers in their own right to discuss a text or a, a, an extract from a text which they've found particularly thought-provoking themselves and then their task as it were has been to provoke you in turn. Um, I was reading today a very old essay from the 1950s describing us as living in a time where thinking is fleeing and that uh, an age of thoughtlessness and I hope that this is some kind of antidote to that where thinking can still happen, at least a provocation to thinking can still happen. Um, it's wonderful to see so many of you here today under this title of uh, Bergson, A Machine for the Making of Gods. Bergson was absolutely enormous in France, uh, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, and was an influence on French philosophy throughout the 20th century, really. But he, he's one of these people who, in a certain way, became a, a forgotten thinker, was left behind, displaced by the new masters like Sartre and, and later people like Derrida. And um, there have been people who could have maintained an interest in Bergson and, and trying still to read him and to find Bergson still worth reading. And uh, our speaker tonight, Keith Ansel Pearson, is one of those. Um, he's written a book, Philosophy and the Adventures of the, of the Virtual, Bergson and the Time of Life. And he's also edited with John Malarkey a key writings text, edited with um, John Malarkey a key writings text. Now, Keith's probably best known for his work on Nietzsche, certainly best known to me, I don't know about for you, but um, uh, Nietzsche is certainly occupied and preoccupied him but uh, he tells me he has a, a fairly divided mind and depending on what the subject is he makes his way with different thinkers and on the subject that he's looking at tonight it's going to be Bergson so uh, Keith thank you very much for coming uh, Keith will have um, 50 minutes to an hour to provoke you and then there'll be a further 30 minutes in which you can ask questions and make contributions of, of, of your own so uh, um, thank you very much for coming and a great welcome to Keith Ansel Pierce. Okay, well let me thank Simon and Juliana for the invitation to speak tonight. Um, I should say at the very outset that I'm not an expert on this text that I'm going to talk about. It's only relatively recently that I've turned my attention to it in an attempt to study it quite seriously. Uh, the work I've been doing on Bergson uh, over the years has kind of gone up to the point of creative evolution and stopped there. So for some reasons, which I'm not going to explore, uh, some unconscious reasons or resistance, I've neglected this book, neglected this text or ignored it. 
And then suddenly I thought the time came where I had to undertake quite a serious study and engagement with it. And that's what I've been doing, but only quite recently. Okay, so I'm far from being an expert on the book. Um, now the book, The Two Sources of Morality and Religion, is a text written by that great Judeo-Christian, as Derrida has called Bergson, and was published in 1932. It contains Bergson's most sustained contribution to ethics. Prior to the appearance of this work, um, his commentators could only speculate on the eth ethical implications of his philosophy, linking the critique of scientific and psychological determinism, um, as espoused in his previous texts, such as Time Free Will or Matter and Memory or Creative Evolution, with the concerns of ethics. As one commentator notes, for several years Bergson had expressed doubts whether he would publish a book on ethics, simply because he doubted whether he could attain conclusions as demonstrable as those of his other texts. Philosophy proceeds by a definite method and can legitimately claim as much objectivity as the positive sciences, Bergson thinks, though of a different kind. Bergson was therefore in search of an approach to ethics that would satisfy the ambition that he had set for philosophy, that of achieving precision. In addition to this concern with gaining precision over our understanding of the domains of morality and religion, the text raises, as we'll see, some demanding and difficult questions about the human condition and about human society, especially the future of human society. <coughs> At the very end of the book, Bergson states, for example, that human beings are now confronted with a special kind of responsibility. He says, not simply to decide in favour of living, but to make the effort to fulfil the function of the universe and to become like gods. Let me cite exactly what Bergson says in a curious entwining of the mystical and the political. This is at the very end of the book, and it's the quote that's been uh, put on the website. Joy would indeed be that simplicity of life diffused throughout the world by an ever-spreading mystic intuition. Joy too with that which would automatically follow a vision of the life beyond attained through scientific experiment. Failing so thoroughgoing a moral reform, we must be content with shifts and submit to more and more numerous and vexatious regulations, intended to provide a means of circumventing each successive obstacle that our nature sets up against our civilization. And then comes the key part of the citation. But whether we go bail for small measures or great, a decision is imperative. Humanity lies groaning, half crushed beneath the weight of its own progress. Human beings do not sufficiently realise that their future is in their own hands. Theirs is the task, first of all, uh, sorry, theirs is the task of determining, first of all, whether they want to go on living or not. Theirs the responsibility then for deciding if they really want to live or intend to make just the extra effort required for fulfilling, even on their refractory planet, the essential function of the universe, which is a machine for the making of gods. Now, there are obvious and less obvious questions to ask of such an extraordinary statement or set of statements to deal with the obvious ones to begin with. What kind of claim is Bergson making with respect to the universe? Okay, what kind of claim is Bergson making, making with respect to the universe? Is it not a little strange to assign a function to the universe? Can such a claim withstand the scrutiny of scientific reflection or would such reflection show it to be little more than a poetic flight of fancy? 
Moreover, just what it what would it mean for us to become gods? In what sense did Burton intend this? Burton seems to leave it open to his readers to work out the character of his concluding claim. But I want to take what he says as a provocation. Indeed, the whole book strikes me as a series of provocations. For example, the claim made in the opening chapter of the book that all morality is in essence biological. Or the claim that religion, uh, that Bergson makes later in the book, religion is superior to philosophy because there is too much contemplation in philosophy. Or the claim that mystics are not, the crack, are not crackpots but harbingers of a new humanity. The list could well be extended. It seems to me that Bergson wanted, above all, to provoke some urgent and deep reflection on the human condition. I propose to read the statement, therefore, in the context of the essential claims of the book as a whole, and especially its key distinction between the open and the closed. Bergson is concerned with whether this distinction can enable us to solve important theoretical problems, for example, to do with the origins of morality or the sources of morality, and also help us practically for example, with respect to the problems that afflict our habitation on the planet, such as war and the causes of war. This is what Bergson turns to in the conclusion to the book. Okay, he's undertaken this theoretical analysis into the nature of the closed and the open, the static and dynamic, and then he says at the end, can this uh, inquiry enable us to solve some specific, concrete, practical problems? And I agree with the editors of a recent volume of essays on the text, it's the first um, series of essays to be published on the text in English, in fact, when they argue that war, war, or the problem of war, is the, sorry, that war is the coordinating problem of the book. Now, the book has a number of important contexts and receptions. The contexts include that of Bergson's critical reception of philosophy from Plato to Kant, the context of his debate with French sociology, notably Durkheim, but perhaps the most important context is the time of the book's composition. The text is written in the interwar period, and in the book there are references to the First World War. Bergson is acutely aware of the realities of modern war warfare and the way it has resulted in the terrible slaughter of life. Hence his question concerning whether we wish to go on living or not. And if we do, what is this life to be? Is it to be mere survival and consumption? <coughs> If so, won't we condemn ourselves to an endless cycle, an eternal recurrence of war and peace? And shouldn't such a prospect make us think, <coughs> make us pause to think? Okay, so what I'll do is divide the talk into two main parts. In the first part, I'm going to give an exegesis of what Bergson means by this distinction between the closed and the open. And in the second part, I'll be more interpretive about the conclusions that he's working out in the book. Now, throughout his corpus, Bergson draws distinctions that are designed to enable us to think and work through a problem. At the heart of his analysis in the two sources is an especially sharp distinction in the sphere of the social between the closed and the open. The closed society, says Bergson, is human society fresh from the hands of nature. And the human animal was made for it, he says, as the ant was made for the ant heap. In such a society, the members are held together, caring nothing for the rest of humanity, and displaying a perpetual readiness for battle. By contrast, the open society embraces in principle, in principle, all humanity, 
And as we'll see, its guiding cosmopolitan ideas are the inventions of open souls for blokes, open souls, that break with the limits of normal or typical human nature. The, the closed morality aims at social cohesion and social preservation of the group, be it the tribe, the community, the city or the nation, and is essentially about habituation, even automatism. Automatism. By contrast, the open morality concerns creation and is centred for Bergson on moral innovators and great mystics, such as Jesus. Before turning to this other morality, let me clarify Bergson's account of the morality of obligation, or what he calls acquiring the habit of forming habits. Bergson wants to show that whilst particular moral obligations are conventional in nature, whilst particular moral obligations are conventional in nature, the whole of obligation is something natural for us to acquire. For Bergson, then, we can posit a primitive, irreducible morality, one that he says is contemporary with the appearance of the human. Okay, we can posit this primitive, irreducible morality that is contemporary with the appearance of the human. In part, his analysis on this point is motivated by a desire to reintegrate the human being into nature. The roots of morality, he thinks, elude the search of a purely intellectualist philosophy. And instead, we need to understand morality, as Bergson says, as a discipline that is demanded by nature. Okay, this is why some people have seen Bergson's text as a pioneer in the discipline of sociobiology, adopting this sociobiological approach to morality. As when he says, as I've just quoted, morality needs to be seen as a discipline uh, demanded by nature. How does it justify this claim about morality? In its origins, morality, for Bergson, is the pressure of prohibition that we are habituated to, in the same way that necessity works in nature. Although analogous, these are not the same. As Bergson notes, an organism subject to laws, it must obey is one thing. A society composed of free wills is another. We have inflexibility in one case, flexibility in the other. So in the case of human life, we can say there is a habit of obligation. From an initial standpoint then, social life can be defined as a system of more or less deeply rooted habits that correspond to the needs of a community. Habits of command and obedience in the form of an impersonal social imperative. As with all habits, we feel a sense of obligation. And for Bergson's social obligation, it's a special kind of pressure and habit. He writes at the beginning of the book, society, society present within each of its members as claims, which whether great or small, each express the sum total of its vitality. Now Bergson is not claiming that society is nature, or that the regularity established in the two orders is of the same kind. For a start, for him, society is a collection of free wills, it simply means in the sense that it's always possible to disobey or to, to dissent. Rather, he says, there is an analogy, an analogy to the inflexible order of the phenomena of life. So the law which constitutes fact, enunciates facts is one thing, and the law which commands is another. It is possible to evade the latter, so we have obligation and not necessity. And yet, Bergson notes, the commands of society have all the appearance or assume all the appearance of laws of nature, so that a breach of the social order strikes us as anti-natural with the lawbreaker compared to a freak of nature, such as the misfit or the parasite. Morality is a screen of order and discipline, and the possible immorality 
that is behind the exterior which humanity presents itself uh, to the world is not seen under normal circumstances. And Burton argues there's not simply the duty to obey social commands, but also the awareness that it is possible to evade the social imperative. And yet, even in that evasion, one feels the debt. For Burton, the important point is this. Obligation comes as much from within as from without. Obligation comes as much from within us as from without us. But is this not because what is internalised is the culture formation of social obligations? Well, Bergson thinks there's a point reached where it becomes virtually impossible to distinguish between the individual and society. Obligation first binds us to ourselves, he says, or rather to the superficial or surface self, what he calls the social self. Obligation first binds us to ourselves, or rather to the superficial or surface self what he calls the social self. To cultivate this social ego, he says, is the essence of our obligation to society. To cultivate this social ego is the main task. The social ego, then, is ourselves as a form of recognition of ourselves. So Bergson writes, were there not some part of society in us, it would have no hold upon us. The individual is perfectly aware that the greater part of his strength comes from this source that he owes to the ever-recurring demands of social life that unbroken tension of energy, that steadiness of aim and effort, which ensures the greatest return for his activity. But he could not do so, even if he wished to, because his memory and his imagination live on in what society is implanted in them, because the soul of society is inherent in the very language that he speaks. So the verdict of conscience, what we understand by conscience, is for Bergson that given by the social self though it may not be the only source of conscience. Our debt to, or debt or obligation to society is to cultivate our social ego. And unless some part of society within, was within us, Bergson thinks it could not have the hold that honours that it does. He recognises that it can take a violent break to reveal clearly the extent of the nexus of the individual to society. For example, we can think about the remorse of the criminal. The criminal loses his identity, does not know who he is anymore. Such is the nature of his transgression. And this, for Bergson, is generated by his own conscience. His desire, the desire of the criminal, is not to so much to evade punishment, Bergson thinks, but to wipe out the past, to deny the knowledge of what has been done, as though the crime had not really taken place. The criminal thus feels more isolated than does someone waking up to find themselves stranded says Bergson, on a desert island. The criminal could rejoin society if he confessed to his crime and became the author of his own condemnation. Now what Bergson wants to demonstrate in the opening part of the book is that obligation, as he says, obligation is in no sense a unique fact. Obligation is in no sense a unique fact. Incommensurate with others, illumined above them like a mysterious apparition. Rather, he says, we have any number of particular obligations, each calling for a separate explanation. It is naturally, he thinks, a matter of habit to obey them all. Suppose, he says, that exceptionally we deviate from one of them, then there would be resistance. But if we resist this resistance, a state of tension or contraction is likely to result. And is this, it is this rigidity which we objectify, he thinks, when we attribute a stern aspect to duty. So Bergson appreciates that when we resist resistance, 
such as temptations, passions or desires, we need to give ourselves reasons. There is the call of an idea, and autonomy, or the exertion of self-control, takes place through the medium of intelligence. However, Bergson argues from the fact that we get back to obligation by rational ways, it does not follow that obligation was of a rational order. From the fact that we get back to obligation by rational ways, it does not follow that obligation was of a rational order in its source. He says he will come back to this point in a fuller discussion of ethical theories. For now, though, he makes a distinction between a tendency, natural or acquired, and then rational method that a rational being uses to restore to its force and to combat what is being opposed. So what is the point that Burks is trying to emphasize? His stress is on the social origins of obligation. Without this stress, he thinks we posit, as we find in Kant, an abstract conception of our conformity to duty, in which the totality of obligation represents a force which, if it could speak, would utter, you must because you must. Bergson acknowledges that intelligence introduces greater logical consistency into our lines of conduct. However, is it not the case that we never sacrifice our vanity, passions and interests to the need for such consistency? For Bergson, we go wrong, not when we ascribe a spurious and independent existence to reason, but when we ascribe to it what he calls a controlling power or agency of action. He says we might as well believe that the flywheel drives the machinery. So Bergson's not denying that reason intervenes as a regulator to assure consistency between rules and maxims, but claiming that it oversimplifies what is actually taking place in the becoming of a moral agent. Reason, he thinks, is at work everywhere and in immoral behaviour. Thus, an individual whose respectable behaviour is the least based on reasoning, such as sheepish conformity, for example, at least introduces a rational order into their conduct from the mere fact of obeying rules that are logically connected to one another. And this may require social evolution and the refinement of morals. This is because a principle of economy for Bergson governs logical coordination. By contrast, nature, he thinks, is lavish, and the closer a community stands to nature, we will find a greater proportion of unaccountable and inconsistent rules. The point, then, is that the essence of obligation for Bergson is something different from the requirement of reason. And he wants to stress this point in order to show what he sees as the natural sources of obligation and duty. The totality of obligation, he says, is the habit of contracting habits. And this, he thinks, is a specifically human instinct of intelligence. Okay, how does he arrive? at this insight. Well, Bergson wants us to imagine that evolution has proceeded along two divergent lines, with societies at the extremities of each. On the one hand, he thinks the more natural will be the instinctive type, the completely instinctive type of life, such as ants or the beehive. On the other hand, there is the society where a degree of latitude has been left to individual choice or waywardness. For nature to be effective in this case, and to achieve a comparable regularity, there's a recourse to habit in the place of instinct. And Bergson argues, each of these habits, which may be called moral, would be incidental. But the aggregate of them, I mean the habit of contracting these habits, being at the very base of societies and a necessary condition of their existence, would have a force comparable to that of instinct in respect of both intensity and regularity. And Bergson thinks that however much a society progresses in terms of its refinement, social complexity and spiritualisation, 
this original design set down by nature will remain. For Burton, then, social life is imminent, if only as a vague ideal, in instinct and intelligence. The difference in human societies is that it is only the necessity of a rule that is the only natural thing, and rules are not laid down by nature. So the conclusion is reached by Bergson that obligation is a kind of virtual instinct, similar to that which lies behind the habit of speech. Obligation, he thinks, needs to lose its specific character so that we recognise it as amongst the most general phenomena of life. Obligation is the form assumed by necessity in the realm of human social life. Now, how can we say, as Bergson wants to say, that this source of morality is still active within civilised societies? Bergson evinces a number of reasons. His principal one is to claim that both primitive and civilised societies are, in essence, closed societies. Okay, both primitive and civilised societies, he thinks, are, in essence, closed societies. To appreciate this insight, he thinks we need to turn away from any kind of moral idealism. It is this idealism that would give a civilised society from the start. We cannot, however, begin by assuming that society is an accomplished fact, as when we lay down as a duty the respect of life and property of others, as, an, um, sorry, as a fundamental demand of social life. For, as Bergson asks, which society do we have in mind? What if we look at the matter, he thinks, through a more realistic lens? We know that in times of war, murder, pillage and cheating are deemed to be not only lawful, but praiseworthy. Fair is foul, and foul is fair, he cites from Macbeth's witches. Instead of listening to what society says of itself, he says, to know what it thinks and wants, we need to look at what it does. Surely war and vice are exceptions and abnormalities. But then, as Burton points out, disease is as normal as health, and peace is often a preparation for war. So however much society endows the human, whom it has trained to discipline, with all it has acquired during centuries of civilization, it still has need, Bergson thinks, it still has need of the primitive instincts that it coats with a thick varnish. The concern here, then, is never with humanity as an ideal. For this, Bergson thinks, we need to uncover the sources of another morality, the open kind. And this is what he thinks we find difficult to adequately think. So he writes... Between the nation, and however, however big, and humanity, there lies the whole distance from the finite to the indefinite, from the closed to the open. Between the nation, however big, and humanity, there lies the whole distance from the finite to the indefinite, from the closed to the open. Our sympathies are supposed to broaden out in an unbroken progression, to expand whilst remaining identical, and to end by embracing all of humanity. But this, says Bergson, is a priori reasoning, the result of a purely intellectualist conception of the soul. So for him, the primitive instinct, hidden under the accretions of civilization, is love of our community or tribe. Social cohesion, he says, is largely due to the necessity for a community to protect itself against others, and that it is primarily as against all other men that we love the men with whom we live. So to, to proclaim that one loves humanity or to decree that each human being, qua human being, possesses an inviolable dignity. Both religion through God and philosophy through reason do this, Bergson thinks, is to take a spiritual leap. We don't, he contends, come to these ideas by degrees. 
Now let me now explore the nature of this second morality, or what Bergson calls complete morality, this open morality. Bergson thinks that we need to mark the difference between the two moralities that he's tracing, the open and the closed, as a difference in kind, since the tendency in each case is quite different. The first consists in impersonal rules and formulae. The second, for him, incarnates itself in a privileged personality that then becomes an example or an exemplar. For Bergson, there are exceptional human beings, including the Christian saints, the sages of Greece, the prophets of Israel, the spiritual practitioners of Buddhism, and so on. And whereas the first morality works as a pressure or a propulsive force, the second morality for Bergson has the effect of an appeal. Now can we say that operative in this open soul that's going to break through with this second kind of morality, there is the love of all humanity? For Bergson, this does not go far enough since he thinks it can be extended to animals, plants, and to all of nature. It could even do so without them, sorry, it could even do without them, since its form is not dependent on any specific content. So he writes, charity, or caritas, would persist in him who possesses caritas, though there be no other living creature on earth. It is for him, then, a psychic attitude, which, strictly speaking, does not have an object. So of what does it speak? It is not acquired by nature, but requires an effort. It transmits itself through feeling. Think, uh, Bergson invites us to reflect, on the attraction or appeal of love, of its passion in its early stages, and which resembles an obligation. Perhaps a tragedy lies ahead, a whole life wrecked, uh, wasted and ruined. But this, he thinks, does not stop us responding to its call or its appeal. We are entranced, he thinks, as in cases of musical emotion, which introduces us into new feelings, as passers-by, he says, are forced into a street dance. The pioneers in morality, he thinks, proceed in a similar fashion. Life, he says, holds for them unsuspected tones of feeling, like those of some new symphony. And they draw us after them into this music, that we may express it in action. We obey, then, the call or appeal of love, and this shows us the passion of love, or of a great emotion, for good or for ill. Now, does Bergson here, as several commentators have argued, show himself to be an extreme irrationalist? Well, his argument, as he puts it, as he sees it rather, is against intellectualism. He says, for example, it is through an excess of intellectualism that feeling is made to hinge upon an object, and that all emotion is held to be the reaction of our sensory faculties to an intellectual representation. And he again reflects on the example of music, when he asks, are the emotions expressed linked to any specific objects of joy, of sorrow, of compassion, or of love? Or is it not the case that in listening to music, we feel as though we desire only what the music is suggesting to us, and in which we become what the music expresses, be it joy, pity, grief, or love? As he writes, when music weeps, all humanity, all nature weeps with it. The difference that Bergson's getting at here is a radical one, and it is between an emotion that can be represented in images and objects, and what he calls the creative emotion, which is beyond representation, and is a real invention. States of emotion caused by certain things are ordained by nature for him, and are finite or limited in number. I'll say that again. States of emotion caused by certain things are ordained by nature, 
and are finite or limited in number. We recognise them quite easily, things, because their destiny is to spur us onto acts that answer to our needs. Now, Burton is not blind to the illusions of love or to the psychological deceptions that may be at work. He maintains, however, that the effect of creative emotion, what he calls creative emotion, that's going to give birth to this second morality, this open morality, is not reducible to this. This is because there are emotional states, he thinks, that are distinct from sensation. That is, they cannot be reduced to being a psychical transposition of a physical stimulus. And these are of two kinds. First of all, where the emotion... Sorry, there are two kinds. First of all, where the emotion is a consequence of an idea or a mental picture. And secondly, where the emotion is not produced by a representation, but is productive of ideas. Okay, so two kinds of emotion. Where the emotion is a consequence of an idea or a mental picture. And secondly, where the emotion is not produced by a representation, but is itself productive of ideas. And Bergson thinks that a creative emotion is the kind of emotion that informs the creations not only of art, but of science and even civilization. Okay, that the great ideas, if you like, of civilization are ones that come or emanate or emerge from a creative emotion. It is a unique kind of emotion for him, one that precedes the image, that he says virtually contains it and is its cause. So this, um, sorry, this means that Berkeley's position is not reducible, as we might think, to a moral philosophy of sentiment, simply because we're dealing here with an emotion that is capable of crystallising into representations, even into an ethical doctrine. Now, Bergson acknowledges that many will find this account of, sec of the second morality difficult to accept. But he argues that neither morality exists in a pure state, certainly not in our world today. The first has handed on to the second something of its compulsive force, he says, whilst the latter has diffused over the former something of its scent. Nevertheless, there are important differences to be maintained in an effort to achieve some kind of theoretical clarity on the difference between these two moralities. So, for example, for Bergson, the former, the first morality, is fixed to what he calls self-preservation, and the circular movement in which it carries round with the individuals, as if revolving on the same spot, is but a vague imitation, through habit, of the immo immobility of instinct. In this first morality, Bergson thinks, we attain pleasure centred on the well-being of the individual and society, but not what he calls joy. We attain pleasure, but not joy. By contrast, in the open morality, Bergson thinks we experience progress, which is experienced in the enthusiasm of what he calls a forward movement. And this is what he calls an opening of the soul, or a breaking with nature, a moving beyond the boundaries of the city, or the closed. Now, whereas the first morality has its source in nature, Bergson thinks the other kind has no place in nature's design. Nature, he thinks, may have foreseen a certain expansion of social life through intelligence, but only of a limited kind. But it has gone so far, he thinks, as to endanger the original structure. More concretely, he says, nature surely intended that man, men should beget men endlessly, according to the rule followed by all other living creatures. She took the most minute precautions to ensure the preservation of the species by the multiplication of individuals. Hence she had not foreseen when bestowing on us intelligence that intelligence would at once find a way of divorcing the sexual act from its consequences and that man might refrain from reaping without foregoing the pleasure of sowing. And it is in quite another sense, he says, that man outwits nature 
when he extends social solidarity into the brotherhood of man. However, for Bergson, an absolute break with nature is never possible or conceivable. It might be said, he writes, slightly distorted Spinoza, that it is to get back to natura naturans that we break away from natura naturata. The circle is broken not through preaching love of one's neighbour, since it is not by expanding Bergsonists our narrower feelings that we can embrace humanity. We can, however, you think, stop short of action in making the transition from the closed to the open. There can be what he calls a waning of the vitality of impetus. A waning of the vitality of impetus. We can halt, for example, at the point of intelligence. In leaving the closed, the sentiment most likely to be adopted for Bergson is the ataraxy, or apathy, of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Here we are moving from a detachment from the old life to what he calls a new attachment to life, but we only reach the point of contemplation. Perhaps we end up affirming contemplation as the highest ideal, and Bergson thinks the development of Platonism, with Plotinus for example, exemplifies this ideal. Indeed, Bergson's worry is that there remains too much contemplation within philosophy, and one of the reasons why he privileges religion over philosophy is because he sees it as a domain of action and creation, or at least privileges what he calls dynamic religion. So Bergson may accord a privileged field of vision to the great mystics, but for him, they are the harbingers of a new humanity. They are not quietists, but the harbingers of a new humanity. Mystics, for Bergson, are not simply humans of vision, raptures and ecstasies, but what he calls figures of action. And Bergson asks, is there not a mystic dormant within each one of us that may respond to a call? Is there not a mystic dormant within each one of us that may respond to a call? Now, what is Bergson's challenge in, the, in this account of the two sources of morality? Okay, what is his challenge? What, what's the challenge he's presenting in this account of the two sources of morality, the two different types that he's attempted to uncover? Well, I think it is this. For Bergson, neither obligation nor the force that extends it can originate it or have its source in mere ideas. In and of themselves, ideas are without power to affect the real world. To become effective, an idea needs to take hold of us effectively, and thus in the process creating a desire for its own realisation. It's important to insist that Bergson is not simply contra reason. He writes at one point in the book, for example, that the rational alone is self-consistent and cannot be devalued. But he does maintain that it needs to have a divine character, as he calls it, if it is to impel us. So he writes, <clears throat> that reason is the distinguishing mark of man, no one will deny. That it is a thing of superior value, in the sense in which a fine work of art is indeed valuable, will also be granted. But we must explain how it is that its orders are absolute, and why they are obeyed. Reason can only put forward reasons, which we are apparently always at liberty to counter with other reasons. Let us not then merely assert that reason, present in each one of us, compels our respect and commands our obedience by virtue of its paramount value. We must add that there are, behind reason, human beings who have made mankind divine, and who have thus stamped a divine character on reason, which is the essential attribute of the human. So for Bergson, it's a mystification to construct an ethics or a politics based on the hope of a progressive realisation of a rational ideal. This is because for him, there's no rational way 
to get from the closed society to the open one. The difference between the two is this, it's not one of degree, but of kind. The closed society precludes, then, the realisation of the ideal of humanity, whereas it is the definition of the open. OK, I'll now move on to the second part of the paper, which is a shorter part, um, trying to interpret some of the conclusions that Bergson draws from his analysis and how he thinks that this distinction that he's drawn between the closed and the open can help us to solve some practical problems. <coughs> okay, so let me highlight the key issues that Bergson thinks confront humanity at this crucial juncture in its evolution. In the long conclusion to his text, Bergson asks whether the distinction between the closed and the open, so necessary, he thinks, to help solve theoretical problems, is able to help us practically. The object of the work was to investigate the origins or sources of morality and religion. However, Bergson thinks we cannot simply rest content in our inquiry with developing only certain conclusions. Since, he says, we still suffer historically from what has been uncovered as constituting the beginnings of human existence, namely the tendencies of the closed society. Bergson insists that closedness still persists. He says, ineradicable, in the society that is on the way to becoming an open one. Moreover, and this is a key insight, he says, since all these instincts of discipline originally converged towards the war instinct, we are bound to ask to what extent the primitive instinct can be repressed or circumvented. What Bergson has shown is that there are strata of human evolution, and civilised nations and communities are by no means open societies because they are still largely determined by nature and necessity. They rely upon their existence on sentiments that have their basis in earliest humanities. It is thus an error to locate progress naively in some simple transformation from the antique to the modern, from pre-science to science, or from unreason <coughs> to reason and enlightenment. Okay, this is one of the myths of modernity that I think Bergson is exposing in the book. Bergson has sought to show in the book that modern humanity remains as irrational and superstitious as ancient humanity. This does not mean for him that there has not been progress. There has, but genuinely new, and so new social and moral inventions are rare or extremely rare and frequently get overtaken again or subsumed within the closed. Bergson thinks that it's possible to get back in thought to a fundamental human nature, and this is some original closed society. He holds that the general plan of such a society fitted the pattern of our species as the ante fits the ant, with one crucial difference. The actual detail of the social organisation is not given in the case of the human, and there is scope for genuine, genuine social and moral invention. And he acknowledges that a knowledge of nature's plan, which is a way of speaking, he says, since nature has not consciously designed anything, would be of mere historical interest were it not for the fact that today humanity, as he says, finds itself groaning, half crushed beneath the weight of its own progress. <coughs> so Bergson is insistent that the original state of the mind of the human survives, hidden, he says, beneath the abyss, which would indeed, uh, without which indeed there would be no civilization. And of the strata of human social life we are no longer aware, save at rare intervals and then in a flash. Sorry, of the, different, of the buried strata of human social life we're no longer aware of these strata, save at rare intervals and then in a flash. So for all his alleged vitalistic optimism, 
and Bergson does hold the uh, land vital, this vital impetus to be fundamentally optimistic, Bergson is locating within civilised humanity a dark past and terrible secret, namely what he calls the war instinct. Bergson admits to not believing in what he calls the fatality of, in, of history. He doesn't believe in the fatality of history, since he thinks there's no obstacle that cannot be broken down where there are worlds sufficiently keyed up to deal with it in time. Thus he is adamant that there is no unescapable historical law. But what there is, he thinks, is biological laws. Okay, there's no unescapable historical laws, but there are biological laws, by which he means forces and tendencies, such as pressure and the closed society. Now Bergson thinks that we face two grave problems in our present. Okay, we face two grave problems in our present. And both have their roots in the civilization that we have been developing for ourselves for some time, which he calls aphrodisiacal. Okay, we've been creating an aphrodisiacal society. The first is war and new kinds of war. Bergson holds that war is something natural. Humanity is an animal species like any other, and so driven by self-preservation. In history, this instinct has taken the form of establishing small tribal communities. And under certain conditions, each community takes what it needs and protects itself from other tribes that threaten it. This war instinct, then, in its origins, is what Bergson calls the egoism of the tribe. Humans differ from animal species in the extent of their tool-making intelligence, and humanity has the property of its instrument. Whilst the war instinct exists independently, it nevertheless hinges, Bergson thinks, on rational motives. And history teaches us that these have been extremely varied. Property is the necessary condition for war, while sufficient condition is contact between communities. But Bergson notes, however, that the motivations for war become increasingly few as war becomes more terrible. He notes that the last war, the First World War, of course, as well as the future wars that we can for dimly foresee, are bound up with the industrial character of our civilization. So he says the main causes of modern war, the main causes of modern war, are, he says, increasing population, the closing off of markets, the cutting off of fuel and raw materials. The most serious cause of war today, he thinks, is overpopulation and the need for luxury. So he calls for measures to control population. Uh, expansion in some, some countries, as well as a more rational and equitable distribution of the world's resources. The second problem that Bergson highlights is what he calls simply sex, or rather the extent to which we are animals driven by an instinct to reproduce. This instinct demands that we preserve the species by producing as many individuals as possible. So this is connected to the first problem. However, it's also connected to a different problem. This is due to the fact that, for Bergson, sexual pleasure is what he calls a sensation, not an emotion, albeit an especially strong sensation. It is something physical, not spiritual, by definition. As an especially intense sensation, sexual pleasure is based on only differences of degree. Its pleasure, he thinks, can vary from one partner to another, but as a pleasure, it is always essentially the same. There is no difference in kind from one sexual act to another. The problem, Bergson thinks, is that we are creating now a sexualized culture in which he says the only sound that we hear is sex. This sound of sex, Bergson says, is our obsession. Sex appeal, 
he writes. It's the keynote of our whole civilization. What does he mean? Well, in part, he means that we find it pleasurable to love pleasure, and to this end we want conveniences. And we increasingly find ourselves caught in the grip of what he calls the frenzy of consumption. We increasingly find ourselves caught up in the grip of the frenzy of consumption. The goal of our activities is this becomes simply pleasure. Not a higher or superior ideal, but only this. So here, perhaps, Bergson's portrait, towards the end of the book, is not that dissimilar to the one that Nietzsche gives in his prologue to this book, Zarathustra, concerning the reign of the last human who has discovered happiness, or pleasure, and blinks. Bergson wants to show us that what must be sorry. Bergson wants to show us what must be given up if war is to be abolished, and this is the main concern of his conclusion. As he says, humanity will change only if it is intent upon changing. But such a change, he thinks, would be dramatic. It would involve, for example, creating what he calls a new ascetic ideal in the form of a commitment to a simpler life, renouncing the frenzy of consumption that holds us in its grip, because for him it is a form of madness. As he says, should not this frenzy open up our eyes? Should not this very frenzy open up our eyes? Must there not be, he says, a new frenzy? Humanity must set about simplifying its existence, he writes, with as much frenzy as it has devoted to complicating it. Now, Berkson's concluding reflections, we raise the questions of how this divine humanity, or this superior humanity that he's hinting at, could come into existence. The obstacle to be overcome is the mode of living which claims change the human to the earth as an animal species. One path, he says, is to intensify the intellectual work to such an extent that we carry intelligence far beyond what nature may have intended, and that the simple tool leads to a vast system of machinery such that human activity is given its maximum liberty. This liberation, in turn, would be stabilised by social and political organisation that ensures the application of mechanism to its true object. Now, what is the danger with this course of action? For Burton, it is that mechanisation, or increasing mechanisation, may turn against what he calls mysticism. In fact, only by reacting against the latter does mechanisation reach its highest picture development. So Burton wants to allow for a complex development in which contrary tendencies evolve and struggle against one another. The other path that war could take, or that humanity could take, is what he calls the mystical direction. And it would merge with the other development, he says, until such a time as a profound change in the material conditions imposed on new man by nature would permit a radical transformation in spiritual matter. This means, he thinks, that the mystic soul is destined in the first instance to place its planted, sorry, its vital energy on the soil of religion and the founding of religious communities. But the ultimate goal is this moral transformation of humanity. The mystic soul waits for humanity to catch up with it, and when ready, it responds to the recall for transformation by bringing its insights into play. Bergson writes, The task of the great mystic is to effect a radical transformation of humanity by setting an example. The object could be attained only if there existed in the end what should theoretically have existed in the beginning, namely a divine humanity. Now for Bergson, a mystical society, or society of what he calls creators, um, is an ideal limit. It's not something that he necessarily sees as practically coming into existence. So like unadorned pure obligation, 
um, sorry, like unadorned ob um, obligation, pure aspiration for Bergson, is this ideal limit. A mystic society which would embrace all humanity, animated by a common will, and working towards a continually renewed creation of a more complete humanity, is no more possible of realisation, Bergson thinks, than the existence in the past of human societies functioning automatically on the model of animal ones. Nevertheless, he thinks it is the mystic souls who will continue to draw civilised societies in their wake. They provide us with a memory, he thinks, of humanity, of that <coughs> ideal of humanity, that cosmopolitan ideal of humanity. So the sub sublime figures of the past and the present exert upon us what he calls a virtual attraction. Now, Burson, as we've seen, calls for a new ascetic ideal. This is what he wants to see come into play as a voluntary asceticism in which we renounce our excessive desire for consumption. For Bergson, the challenge facing the human being is one of liberating itself from this merely natural existence by making, as he puts it, the leap beyond the bonds of nature. The leap beyond the bonds of nature. This explains, I think, why he values what he does value, ethically and politically, namely the open ethical principle of caritas, or charity, and the political form of democracy. For Bergson, both are unnatural. Bergson places the emphasis on the simplification of life and on what it might mean to be human. In order to address the tremendous social, political and international problems of the planet, Burton thinks we need to refine the spirit of invention that to, to date has not been cultivated on the basis of mechanism. It is not more and more reserves of potential physico-chemical energy that need releasing, he says, but those of moral energy. The body, he says, that we've developed, now larger, calls for a bigger soul. A mechanism should mean mysticism. To be gods, then, means for Bergson leading a moral existence of the open kind, an existence of joy in which we have gone beyond the limits of our evolutionary enclosed conditions of existence. As gods, we would not simply be limited in our interests and perceptions by the needs of our own species' preservation. Rather, we would be free to assume responsibility for life as a whole. And for Bergson, this is what it would mean, I think, to reach or attain a state of joy. In an essay of 1911, entitled Life and Consciousness, he had already argued that the destination of nature lies in joy. Pleasure is too tied to preservation. Rather, for, uh, uh, by contrast, for Bergson, joy is a sign that life has been successful and has, has been conquered. All great joy lies brings a triumphant note. All great joy brings a triumphant note. Wherever there is joy, there is creation, says Bergson. And this creation is the highest life that a human being can attain. It is attained, he says, by the artist, the philosopher, the saint, but also by, for Bergson by every human being that engages in what he calls the creation of self by self. But for Bergson, however, it is the genuinely moral human being who is a creator in the highest degree simply because his or her action, which is intense, is also capable of intensifying the actual lives of other human beings. Okay, just a few concluding paragraphs and then I'll finish. Now, Bergson does not think that such a moral transformation of humanity means jettisoning either the machine or science. In the first instance, he thinks it's a question of coordinating industry and agriculture so that the machine is allotted what he calls its proper place. That is the place where it can best serve humanity and where millions do not go every year unfed or are malnourished. In the, case, in the second case, of it's a case of recognising that certain sciences, Bertrand mentions physiology and the medical sciences, have the potential to disclose to us the dangers of the multiplication of our needs, including, he says, all the disappointments which accompany the majority 
of our satisfactions. So, in short, in addition to this mystical intuition that Bergson put in the stress on, he does also call for reason, science, and political will and organisations to effect the necessary transformation. He gives privilege to, to what he calls moral energy simply because he thinks we have need of visionaries who serve as exemplars, showing humanity the way forward in the direction of the open and the creation of new ways of thinking and of feeling. A further point I think is worth stressing, which is the picture of human complexity that I think Bergson presents us with in the text. It is clear that he's in favour of some supreme moral transformation of the human being. However, it is mistaken to think that he is overly sanguine about the chances of this transformation taking place. As we have seen, he's not blind to the realities of the closed. He has furthermore identified the war instinct as humanity's dark, terrible secret. Bergson has been criticised for neglecting the destructive death wish, as well as for providing what is seen to be a highly romanticised account of both the elan of life and of the charismatic character. But such a criticism strikes me as unfair for the reasons I've just hinted at. Although Bergson appeals to the potentialities of the dynamic impetus of life and that endeavours to transcend the closed in all its manifestations, he neither neglects political realities nor underestimates the moral realities in seeking to bring about um, substantial change. For Bergson, there's no pre-existent direction and no natural advance. For him, progress is not written in uh, earth or heaven, land or sky. If there was, there would be no need of creative effort. Finally, then, what are we to make of the dramatic ending or denouement to Bergson's text? Bergson is entertaining at the end of the book the terrible hypothesis that humanity may not simply be able to destroy itself, but may actually desire to. Okay, this is what was troubling him in the 1930s. Okay, the terrible hypothesis that humanity may not simply be able to destroy itself, but may actually come to desire to do this. He's entertaining the idea that not simply sorry, he's entertaining the idea not simply of the destruction of the enemy, but rather the extinction of humanity. Indeed, according to one commentator, he is anticipating the creation of the atomic bomb. What's the significance of this? On one level, it means that Kant's teleology is finished for Bergson. Kant's teleology is finished. Nature does not know better than man what humanity needs, and war cannot any longer be said to be a ruse of reason. So what is decisive for Bergson is the need for the decision, the emphasis that he's putting on in that conclusion to the book. What is decisive is the need for a decision. As he says, not merely to decide in favour of living, in favour of self-preservation, but to make decisions about how to live, to both simplify our existence and ethically and politically transform it. Faced with the possibility of auto-destruction then, he entertains this other possibility, the making of gods. Okay, and I'm going to finish there some. I don't know how uh, similar or different it is, but the um, text that I was citing yeah. at the beginning, saying that thought is we're living in a time where where we're losing thinking, right? And uh, that that comes from a text by Heidegger written in the fifties, mm. where he also talks about our time as one right. which uh, 
um, has to see if it's possible mm. to create a new ground mm. for living mm. in this technological mm. age, and he talked about it as the atomic age, right. sort of after, right. so sort of um, <coughs> 20 years after birth, right. when the atomic reality has yep. arrived. Yeah. And I think they're both similar thinkers in the sense that they would have to see some kind of radical, break, mm. radical transformation mm. yeah. to be sure. sort of uh, something mm. uh, not only needed, but it would have to involve this sort of call thing, being addressed, mm. Mm. being brought into yeah. a, 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 yeah. new, a new way of living. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I mean, is that text, is that what it's called thinking? No, it's a, it's a memorial lecture that ah. he gave in right. his hometown. Right. Uh, it's being actually just to note, it is currently being sung at Tate Modern. Right. Uh, oh, right. In, in a piece by a Berlin based artist called Tino Segal, which is a, sort of about these things. Right. Um, so, please, questions. <coughs> Go on, I dare you, yes. It seems that if, if Bergson were alive today, yeah. he would be shouting about global warming. Yes. From, from the various mm. things you said about overpopulation mm. and yeah. consumption and so on. Sure. So, it's, it, it seems that your earlier comments about resistance mm. would fit in with your comments about overconsumption. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, can you remind us again what, what Bergson says about resistance and temptation and that kind of thing? Well, I'm not sure what we're so. consumed. Yeah. You know, no, nobody's got that problem solved. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I certainly think you're right about the global warming phenomenon. Absolutely. And there's lots of influence on Bergson at the moment on ecological thought. And so the influence is there. But I think the resistance point uh, was something different. It's a specific point about how you explain why obligation can sometimes assume a stern aspect. That's what Bergson was trying to explain. Why is it that um, we, we see sort of um, being dutiful as a difficult problem for us? And Bergson, cause it, Bergson thinks that ultimately we can explain obligation in quite natural terms as just a tranquil state akin to inclination. So, and he's simply saying that what we do is resist one particular uh, obligation or duty, and then you know we resist that, and that's where it's in that resisting the resistance that we feel this stern aspect that we find it difficult to obey the moral law. But it's not it's not really connected. That particular point isn't connected to what you were saying about the, the latter well, part. Well, what's certainly the case is that yeah. you'd have to think that the situation from the 30s through the 50s to ours. Mm. There's a huge magnification of the kind of mm. problem. Mm. I mean, unless you want to say actually he's got it wrong, you know, right. it's not right. to be understood in that way. If you if you take his argument mm -hmm. about uh, consumption and frenzy and so yeah. on, yeah. Um, then you'd have to say that we live in a world where mm. this is multiplied a hundred times a chance, from yeah. the time he was yeah. writing. Well, I, I think, think the question about yeah. resistance right. can be put another way: is that you know, what's the uh, opening for us mm -hmm. into the what he's calling this yeah. open society. Yeah. Well, that's not clear. I think what he thinks it is, whether it might be it might be necessity that imposes upon it, right. imposes upon it, uh, imposes itself upon us. We simply have no choice if we want to survive. But to live more simply. Exactly. So it's not necessarily a moral choice we might make. It might be one that's made for us. Right. 
Yeah. Um, it, it seems uh, the answer might be, as you said a little while ago, that he says to renounce the frenzy of consumption, you have yeah. to simplify life. Yes. But what I don't understand is why he expects that mystics or mm. are going to come along and mm. point us in the right direction. Mm. And, and your statement, as he said, yeah. the founding of religious communities yeah. might be the answer. A lot of people would totally disagree with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you think he still retained uh, that idea mm. that uh, religion and mysticism, I, I still not really clear what does he mean by mysticism yes. in that sense, mm. uh, is, is anything which is possibly acceptable today as an alternative to defensive consumption mm -hmm. or for the threat of war. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Berkson seems to think, he seems to think that some sort of radical transformation is needed, or that some radical sort of removal from that social uh, context is needed, and that mystics perform, perform that function. They are the ones that are going to assume this completely alternative lifestyle and make that choice to simplify their existence. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't inspire other people to do it in a different kind of way. But he just sort of thinks that they're, in a sense, they sort of, they inspire other people, they attract other people down that course, but whether it's to live a sort of vegetarian lifestyle or a simple lifestyle, simple lifestyle in that way. But I don't think he's saying that it's, that's the only course that humanity could take. It's just that, that they would be the pioneers of new, of, of new lifestyles. The mystic souls would be the pioneers of those well, new lifestyles. Very, very, very good, huh? <laughs> <laughs> do, I mean, do you want to well, come back to that? Because I think that there's a fair point mm -hmm. here, which is about, um, first of all, you these are exemplary rare figures yeah, yeah. and quite often that leader type can yeah. turn into something dangerous so they're not leader yeah. figures and if they're genuinely mystics it's yeah. not clear yeah. how they draw us in yeah. and particularly in a world where your other thinker yeah. Nietzsche yeah. might yeah. have thought that there'd be a sort of considerable resistance yeah. on our part or we would fight we we would resist far more than mm. the generation of Bergson mm. before mm. to that kind of appeal. Mm -hmm. so, so it would be just an, yeah. a, a singing to the void in our yeah. world. So yeah. the other side of the magnification of yeah. the things yeah. that he's talking about would be an increased resistance to mm. hearing any such mystical call. Mm. Well, I'm not saying I'm necessarily in favour of what Bergson's saying about uh, the, yeah. mis the mysticism. And it's interesting that he doesn't put the emphasis, why doesn't he put the emphasis on sort of revolution or political transformation? Right. The emphasis is much more on the sort of ethical and individual transformation. Especially if he's going to start dealing with things that concern yeah. humanity as war and, uh, and uh, sex and so on. Yeah, yeah. But I think he thinks that the, the transformation that's needed is so extreme, in a sense, or so profound, that it, it does require these special kinds of communities. But then why he puts it on religious communities, I'm not sure. I mean, he, he does mention philosophical communities, like the Epicureans or the Stoics. But for, for him, they are essentially too passive or too contemplative. It, it might not be that in the 1930s people had another different view of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a great deal more of this mysticism and um, uh, um, transmigration and things going mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Well, maybe, but it was already a minority view that, it, it, you know, at that time, the, the, yeah. in, in, in Christianity, for, mm -hmm. for certain, Christian mysticism 
was overwhelmed by Christian socialism in the 20th century and there were very few Christian mystics around mm -hmm. sort of appeal to that sort of tradition. It is a very counter-canonical, counter-time mm -hmm. position. There was, there was a question over there. Yeah. In fact, I, I want to ask a few questions. Yeah. So, well, um, let's take one for start and we'll see how we go. It's on the same theme. It's on the, the theme of mysticism, actually. And um, I must say I'm not... Uh, I, I find it resonates with me in some ways. And I, I'm thinking about sort of perhaps the writers of Menkius or something that, that, that sort of focuses more on the, on, on the genuine emotion rather than the kind of um, the, on the act that arises from good intentions mm -hmm. and, and, and the sort of you know, this more kind of spiritualist field rather than the, the act that is imposed upon by, by rationality or by obligation or by, by, by the kind of um, trappings, if you'd like, of circumstance or civilization uh, in, in the classical sense of civilization. So I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask why we don't think that the, the, the mystical attitude may be an avenue mm -hmm. and be uh, why why it is that that Bergson doesn't think that 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 it arises from nature in a in a positive sense and, and rather it has to come from from somewhere else from the divine aspect. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that it is not divine. I'm just so he's clearly not an imminent uh, person. That he, he doesn't you know, he separates nature mm -hmm. and the divine. Is that what's happening? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just that I'm not sure. Thank you. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's what he is. Well, as I understand it, whether right or wrong, um, that's how Berkson seems to construe it. That the, uh, well, it, it, it's not clear. I mean, sometimes he'll talk about the, uh, the vital impetus, sort of expressing itself through these mystic, mystical souls, so it's not quite clear what is the nature of the distinction that he might be working with between life and nature, that there might be a distinction between life and nature. Um, but certainly on one level he thinks that nature as... Um, as, as, as sort of bequeathed to us this legacy of the clothes, that, that's basically what nature endows with yeah. the clothes. And so, to, to, for the open souls, it's to, it's to break with that nature. But then he does, he does have this reference to Spinoza's natural naturans, this creating nature. So, in some sense, you know, nature might be a, a kind of life force for person that's got this creative energy informing, and that this is what the mystic soul taps into. And or, the first part of the question, yeah. Keith, about uh, why we as it were, both feel some resonance of this mystical mm. call and yet don't yeah. heed the call. Why, why are we so resistant or comfortable not to heed the call? Or what prevents us, closes us from the call? Um, what, as now? Or yeah. yeah. <laughs> or in the, you know, the sort of thing, is, is, it, yeah. is it the nature of a closed morality, mm. could it, that it will <coughs> in a certain way have a blind spot or a deaf spot to... Well, no, I can only speak of how I might be deaf yeah. to it. Yeah. And it would be in terms of the emphasis on scientific rationality or intelligence, mm -hmm. the power of intelligence. And you could even apply it to another thing. You could apply it to something completely different to Bergson, which would be something like Nietzsche's eternal recurrence, which I'm completely resistant to mm -hmm. as a mystical thought. I simply can't understand it as a mystical thought. And I think it was a mystical experience, ultimately, that Nietzsche had in the mountain, 6,000 feet beyond man in time. You're having a mystical experience. And I, I just can't comprehend it. Right. And, and the resistance is coming from the, the emphasis I would put on scientific rationality, or, or what Bergson calls intelligence. 
that we're tempted to. We're always tempted to take that. I'd be suspicious of it. I'd be sceptical of it because of yeah. its p potential irrationality. Right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Presumably, Percival would be confirmed in his fears if he knew that uh, the current military doctrine of the Western world yeah. is mad, M-A-D, mutually assured mm. destruction. destruction. Yeah. In spite of the end of the Cold War, Cold War having no proper enemy, mm. we are determined yes. to have the power to obliterate other countries. Yes. Totally. Yes. Sure. Yeah, that's a very powerful point. Yeah, so another <laughs> point of this magnification of the, yeah. you know, he, if he's, he, he, in a way there's something very anticipatory about what absolutely. he's saying. Well, I don't know, yeah, I mean, Heidegger in the 50s writing something similar, yeah. uh, Freud in the 30s. Uh, yes, and writing on war, the problem of war, yeah. the civilization is discontent. Yeah. I think that's 1930, 31. And also so saying that civilization we like to think of as a break from yeah. some kind of more primitive yes. natural mm -hmm. way of being, but actually yeah. it's the same basic yes. structures yeah. in play. Yeah. I mean, I think in part, I should just add there, I think Berkeley was responding to Durkheim. Durkheim had that sort of great problem. So how do you, how do you, you know, after the First World War, how do you explain that you know this broke out in the midst of civilised Europe? And Berkeley thought there was no great problem to explain it, because it's, they are, in essence, still closed societies. So he's partly responding to Durkheim on that question. But I think you're right that it, there is a visionary aspect to what Bergson's writing here. Mm. I mean, that's what's sort of resonant about the conclusion to the book. It just seems to obviously anticipate the Second World War, but then, as you, as you just pointed out, what's still going on today? Right. Yeah, up there. I just wanted to say to return to earlier in your lecture, yeah. um, you said that Bergson argues that um, humanity and law uh, is analogous with Objects in nature, committed to the idea that even within science I mean well I mean this is partly why I think he puts emphasis on biology that's the science he's most interested in because he thinks it is the science of the living and it is the science of the creative that the, what's unforeseeable what's novel, what's spontaneous what's contingent um, so he thinks in a sense that biology can break out of mechanism 
And he's trying to, I think, draw upon those resources in his thinking about morality and religion to say that this simply isn't all given to us in advance. What can become of human existence? Well, it he isn't. Can, but he's also, I think the question's a good one in the sense that uh, if you deny Bebson yeah. the right to this concept of free will, yeah. then the ethics is going to collapse mm. and you're going to get a sense of the human being as ultimately no different from an ant or a yes. bee in its form of sociality. Yeah. And even in a mechanistic tone, you, know, you still have all the things you talk about, right? you still have mutation. Like, yeah. say, right. an, an object can follow natural law mm -hmm. or not, and generally if it fails to follow natural law, it dies, or it's, you stop yeah. in uh, evolutionary. So uh, to say these things don't happen, even in the alternative world, can be true. So mm. uh, everything that Ferguson argues around that would still be the case in the alternative So would you have... Would you have caritas? Would you have democracy in a determined universe? Well, we, I mean, have, these are, we have democracy. Yeah. A name for our, uh, yeah. System, but it operates within the context of a closed society. Hmm? It operates within the limits of a closed society. We don't have the democracy, I think, that Bergson was envisaging. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, but the difference between the closed society and the merely animal yeah. type of society was that there was the possibility of. Uh, resisting, or the idea that uh, there was no natural yeah. necessity, only the habitual, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Whereas, if this argument's right, then uh, all of these things which think like we're resisting, yeah. well, we never are. Mm -hmm. They're just, mm -hmm. as it were, other natural mm -hmm. processes, processes. Yeah. Of, yeah. of another kind. So that that effort of distinction is going to break down unless he's got something mm -hmm. like a a spontaneity of will. I mean, I don't know mm -hmm. how he discusses it or, mm -hmm. or justifies it. Well, I think he does it not in a terribly convincing way, okay. which is the the airline vital, yeah. the, the vital impetus, which seems, you know, mysterious. Um, but in terms of how you would account for that. So, I mean, yeah, I take your point. I don't have... Um, I mean, Bergson thinks that evolution, whether it's on the level of organisms or evolution itself as a process, things aren't given in advance. And he also thinks that's the case within the evolution of human society. So that there have been inventions, specific inventions, that we can't calculate, we can't predict these, what, these are going to, what form these are going to take. So nothing is sort of predetermined or fate. I mean, in a sense, that I suppose the danger of that, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure whether ultimately Bergson might think we can't, if, even if that's true, we can't act and think as if it is true. Well, go back to your other thinking. Does that make sense? Go back to your other thinking. Nietzsche often yeah. would criticise yeah. the free will idea as some kind of mm. mystification. Mm. But perhaps he too, he talks about creation yeah. and creativity and so there's... Yes, exactly. There are of the way of the great, yeah. So how 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 do, how in Nietzsche do you get a contrast between the illusory free will idea yeah. and some other kind of dynamic of creativity, which one could still call mm -hmm. freedom? In Nietzsche, yeah, or well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to answer the question in a way, you know, how may, maybe maybe there are ideas of free will that are worth abandoning, but that you have yeah. to hold on to something else. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, let, let me finish what I was going to say, which is that I think, but I was going to say that I think Bergson thinks we can't even think. We shouldn't necessarily think in that mechanistic way. Okay? Even if it is true. But I, I don't think he does believe that. I think he does believe there is, there is a vitalism. It's not just mechanism. 
Um, but I think the philosopher that does think like that is probably Nietzsche. Um, and, and that's how you deal with the problem of nihilism, in a sense. That you, you, you know, he says, I think Nietzsche says that mechanism is one of the causes of nihilism. But how do we know that for sure? I mean, mechanism might simply be, as Bergson thinks, just a product of our specific evolution. The fact that we have certain habits of representation. We have mechanistic, spatialized habits of representation. They've evolved. How have they evolved? Why have they evolved in the way that they have? Our habits of representation. I mean, you know, so how do we know that the mechanism is the true order of things? But certainly in the book, I think he's quite, he's quite keen to combat what he sees as this moral nihilism. So whether he's putting this emphasis on, you know, like, I mean, you could read it in terms of the need for a new myth. I mean, that's certainly where Nietzsche would perhaps come into the picture there, post the death of God. You need a kind of new myth, you need a new goal, like such as the Ubermensch. We need to posit that for humanity to have something to strive, strive towards. But you, you realise that it's, it's completely specific to your, your positing of it. You're not positing it in some absolute or, or transcendent sense. You're not saying this is the truth. You know, what I'm positing is the truth. God is dead, so truth is dead in a sense. So you know what you're positing. It doesn't sound as if Bergson thinks that God is dead. Well, well, the conception he has of God is, I think in the book, as I read it, it seems on the whole largely spinozistic or pantheistic. It's a creative energy for him. So God is not dead in that sense. But whether he's also attaching to the whole set of Christian beliefs and principles, I'm not sure. Well, certainly the cosmopolitanism mm. that you ascribe to him has, I mean, it has heritages and all sorts of ways of thinking. But I, I, I'm struck by Derrida talking about him as that great Judeo-Christian Christian. and the, the tradition of the brotherhood of man mm. is certainly clearly mm. part of a, yeah, a, of that. a long mm -hmm. Christian heritage. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there, there must be a relationship for him between mm -hmm. that brotherhood and, and yeah. divinity yeah. in some way. Yeah. But he seems to think that, 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 I mean, he says the last person you should ask about the nature of God is a philosopher. <laughs> because it, it, it's open to this kind of mystical intuition that's how you come into contact with God and it is a creative a, a, a force of creative energy yeah. <clears throat> mysticism is concerned with one or two things only one is union with God not the God within yeah. and therefore at the same time it's this desire for, you, for the union it's also the desire for what is your true self, and which is the ground of the soul in which God alone can be met. And that means if there is a transformation, as he wants to speak of, it must be a transformation of our basic desires. Mm -hmm. If our desire are for wanting to know what is the real ground of ourselves, mm -hmm. what is true reality, which is identically with, with the divine. If that were the uh, desire, as it was in the Middle Ages, with many things like that, then of course uh, the desire for the simple life, for different values, for what is important, what is the true destiny of man, if that were to uh, take hold of uh, 
bring about the transformation which he's talking of, of the open society. Mm -hmm. And that that would be the only transformation which is necessary. So I didn't catch that. Well, it's the only transformation which is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the first point you made actually is something you, you didn't make much of, which is that mysticism is, is not just anything. It is an idea of a kind of ultimate mm -hmm. oneness with mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a kind of God mm -hmm. involvement, or at least of mm -hmm. the one, mm -hmm. of some sense of the unity mm -hmm. of the one that you find inside yourself. And you have to, in that moment, release yourself from <coughs> All sorts of ordinary desires of mm. consumption, mm. satisfaction, mm. and pleasure mm. in in retrieving that in yourself, mm. and that the mystical project would be one of self-transformation mm. for every any self. Mm. It would have to be a you being drawn into that. It's a change, change of desires yeah. of what is important. Yeah. Desire is you desire something because you think it's important to yourself, yes. self with a small s, not mm -hmm. a big s. Mm -hmm. To find out what is important to self with a big s, mm -hmm. so would that, this, that would, this would be, be transformative. Sorry, would this be moving from uh, a basis of our thinking in rationalism to a, uh, to a basis of thinking in ethics, as Kierkegaard would say, moving from uh, reliance on the rational mm -hmm. to more concerned with behaviour, mm. uh, with movement, with action, rather than thought, pure and simple. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> it's a long time since I read Kierkegaard, so I'm, I can't say. But I think, but I think he said something earlier on, right at the beginning, about Bergson working <coughs> very much along those lines. That, that any true, true moral action mm -hmm. had mm -hmm. probably had a religious inspiration. An emotional, an emotional. force of creative evolution. It's that, what he calls that force of creative energy that precipitates itself into matter in order to wrest from matter what it can. Um, that, that's his definition of it. Well um, done, 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> in light of the fact that he talks a lot about divinity and mysticism, mm. how do we explain the fact that he's talking about the making of gods when most of the main mm. religions mm. and mysticism accept mm. that God is not an entity that can be created? Yes. Yes. Well, I suppose that's that's that, that's right. That's the ultimate challenge, isn't it, of that conclusion to the book, that we are to transform ourselves in such a way that we would become gods, and we would become these creatures of joy. We're not simply wedded to our species preservation. I think that's what he's saying. That, that that's what it would mean for us to become gods, to have that experience of joy through this mystic intuition. Is it significant then that, in fact, in the text is 
God has a little God's God's plural is, and yeah. a little G. Yes, right. I think so. so. It's not about the universe making God, mm. uh, which may or may not be yeah. its general yeah. dimension anyway. Yeah. But it, it would be mm -hmm. ourselves in self-transformation. Yeah, becoming divine in that sense of transcending or merely animal conditions of existence. Okay. Of self-preservation. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry too. In fact, we've got to stop because uh, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, we finished with God. <laughs> <laughs>